Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. Our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, and our... Lovely chat room monitor Andrea is not with us today, but she is listening in. So Ravinder awaits you there. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have some truly great folks that join us every week. So Ravinder, tell us all about the chat room, please. It is a wonderful chat room, and Andrea's not officially working today, but she does tend to pop in and out. She's enjoying cuddling her brand new baby Aiden, which is really adorable, but she says she is paying attention to the show. He is indeed adorable. She puts she lovely it, pictures of him up on the Facebook, and I think all the chat room people basically are her friends on Facebook, uh-huh. so if they haven't seen pictures of the of the family, it's time to go look. Go check it out. Yeah, it is, it's an exciting time for us all. But yes, do come join me in the chat room. We have a wonderful group of people, um, very stimulating conversation, inspiring, and lots of laughter that goes on in there as well. So come join me. That is provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. All right. Today's Veterans Day, and I want to pause for just a moment in honor of all the men and women that have served this great country and offer our most sincere sense of gratitude for their service, acknowledging that our freedom and liberties have been purchased by their sacrifices on our behalf. So to that end, all of you out there, thank you. Thank you, every one of you. All right. Money is the subject of this week's spotlight. Altogether, too many people want it and yet push it away because they believe that money and profit are evil. Is profit evil in your mind? Should entrepreneurs and businesses in general seek to do business at a loss or even at some break-even point in the name of a higher social good? Would creativity be kindled if we but shared and shared alike? I mean, what if the Bill Gates and the Steve Jobs and the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world shared equally with the folks sitting at home watching TV? who are unwilling to take a job that pays no more than what they can collect on welfare or unemployment. Do you really believe that these economic drivers would have worked as hard, taken the risk, been as creative, contributed as much to the production in our economy as they have under those circumstances? If you do, I think you should rethink the matter from your own private perspective. So, for example, think of it this way. Most of you work hard for your pay. So the next time you see some panhandler on the street with a camouflaged bottle of wine in his pack, stop and give him half of what you have earned. If you prefer to be really fair, gather all of the homeless in your area together and divide your earnings equally between them. Most will actually have a gut reaction to this idea that goes something like, but that's not my responsibility. That's the job of those rich people who don't know what work is. 
This week, a friend of mine on Facebook brought an interesting article to my attention titled, We Are Wealthy and Why It Matters. The article begins by pointing out three significant facts. Number one, it is currently estimated that by the year 2016, the richest 1% will control more than half of the world's wealth. Number two, even more shocking, the combined wealth of the 80 richest people in the world is the same as that of the bottom 50% of the Earth's entire population, a population totaling 3.5 billion people. Number three, in America, the wealth inequality gap continues to grow as America's middle class shrinks. The share of American households in the middle class fell from 56.5% in 1979 to only 45.1% in 2012. And there's no indication this trend will reverse itself. Now, the author, Joshua Becker, is quick to acknowledge that the fix for this problem, while necessary, is not easy. But then he recognizes yet another and perhaps more important problem. In his words, But recently I have begun noticing another unhealthy trend, one that may be related to the widening gap, but more likely finds its root in the human spirit. It too requires a solution, albeit a much easier one to define. This equally negative trend is the wealth gap we focus on in our mind and the resulting division we artificially create because of it. Think about that for a moment. What sort of gap in the mind might he be addressing? Could he be addressing the notion of the other 1%, the jealousy many have when they see someone in that new Cadillac or Mercedes, or when they hear of someone's incredible monetary success, or the wages paid corporate executives versus the poor working person laboring for the same company, and so forth? Well, it turns out, That is exactly the sort of thinking that betrays our desire for success. Contemplate that for a minute. Now, comparatively speaking, people in this country are quite wealthy. Again, quoting Becker, globally, an estimated 6 billion people live on less than 13,000 a year. And nearly half the world's population, 2.8 billion people, survive on less than $2 a day. According to the nonprofit group, Giving What We Can, an annual income of $40,000 places you in the richest 2% of the world's population. An income of only $25,000 a year puts you in the top 3%. Even a minimum wage job, $7.25 an hour, 40 hours a week, 52 weeks a year, put you in the top 8% of all people on the planet in terms of income. Adjusting for actual purchasing power makes little difference in the percentages. In other words, we are the rich ones. Most of us seek to improve our way of life, perhaps to pay for a child's college education, or to take a much-deserved vacation, or to buy that new high-definition giant-screen television, or to purchase the car of our dreams, and so on. All the while, we are seeking increased monetary success. We can be condemning it, consciously as well as unconsciously. Here's my suggestion for what it's worth. 
The next time you see someone who appears to be wealthy, say to yourself with as much conviction as you can muster, Wow, that's for me. When you pull up behind that fancy new expensive automobile, bless the owner, for in all probability he or she has contributed to the production of this country, and that contributes to everyone's welfare. Blessing them also acknowledges the fact that it's more than okay to have, to realize the economic prosperity you seek. And then offer a sincere thank you for everything you already do have. Remember this, the root of money is exchange. Money represents your stored energy. It is the result of your labors. Money is a tool of exchange, and without it we are left to a jungle ruled by force and guns. Money is the tool of the honest. Money is the material manifestation of value in exchange for value. It means most to those who recognize this and least to those who are ignorant, convinced that somehow they're entitled to a share of the bounty of another's production. That's how I see it anyway. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? Oh, I think this is a really important conversation. You know, there has been so much division in America the last few years, I suppose. The fact is, we are the rich ones. Um, I think there's actually been something that, you know, that I think of as the fashion of compassion. You know, everyone wants to say, oh, no, we take care of the poor, but then they look elsewhere for someone to do that. For me, the personal goals is for everyone to be wealthier, to have the American dream so that you can rise as high as you want to. And not everybody wants to, and that's perfectly okay. You know, some people don't want to work as hard as Steve Jobs did or, you know. I mean, there are people out there for whom business and working is an art form. They dedicate everything to it. And, you know, it's all it's all a matter of balance. But I do want to see everybody getting wealthier. I don't want to take it from someone else. I want to have the opportunity to make it myself. I like that sense of pride. I want to be able to do it. I want to be able to reach. That's exciting. That's fun. And, yeah. There you go. Now, that's not to discount uh, the abuse of money because that, too, is an issue that that we need to address. But what we don't want to do is undermine our own desires because we're pointing outside and we're making money out to be evil. Okay, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week we had a special visitor, Mr. Tom Danheiser of Coast to Coast AM. Tom shared with us Coast Charitable Program for this holiday, a CD recorded by Coast guests singing and playing your favorite holiday music. The CD is titled Holiday Magic Coast Style, and the proceeds from the sale of this CD go to our veterans' hospitals. Now, several of you wrote and asked about where you could get the CD. You can get it at Amazon or on the Coast website, but if you go to the Coast website, the link takes you to Amazon. So you just go to Amazon to start with. It's a great one, and even George Nury performs a piece on the CD. I got mine, and I encourage you to get yours. It helps our vets out, and it's entertaining. Okay, last week our show featured Dr. Bernard Castro, and we spoke of panpsychism and monistic idealism. Martha wrote, I heard you say to Tom of Coast to Coast that you favored their show over your own. Well, I just wanted to tell you that I'm sure most of your listeners favor your show. 
You ask tough questions and probe much deeper than anyone interviewing guests these days, and I always learn something meaningful from your shows. So thank you, and please don't change what you do. You have the best show out there, barring none. Well, thank you very much, Martha. I like that. I will do my best to live up to your remarks. Gus wrote, I could have listened to you and Dr. Kastrup for days. What a terrific show. He is very articulate, but I don't think he understood your question about the illusion. If I got you right, you were saying something like you can't have it both ways. You can't believe in things like resurrection and accept the idea that we somehow lose our identity and merge back into the one mind. Well, they do seem contradictory for certain, Gus, but then the great mystery may well be beyond our ability to comprehend. Much of what we have learned about physics defies common sense, is contrary to logic, and yet that does appear to be how it is. I tend to agree with you, though. The ideas are mutually exclusive, and I would have loved to have pursued that along with more uh, things like the phenomena of NDEs and reincarnation that Castro openly embraces. How he bridges that with monism, I'm uncertain. But time. We just didn't have enough of it. C.B. wrote, So we are all working from the same base, programming and only experiencing things differently by virtue of our individual perceptions of similar stimuli. Richard wrote, Radical Existential, Subjectivism is poo-poo. He is saying our learned explanations are illusions. I tend to argue that it isn't only just merely all inner world. Inner world is an aspect, not a totality. Mark wrote, So if Bernardo was trying to persuade me to accept this hypothesis, what would determine if I do or I don't? If I don't have the free will to consider his hypothesis, evaluate it, and make a judgment. I imagine that Bernardo is a determinist because he accepts the view that causality is defined by the succession of events. Hume's view. I respect his scientific knowledge, but I'm skeptical about his theory. Moving on, Kelly wrote, I love your Intertalk CDs. I never tire of hearing those sort of comments. How about you, Rev? I like that, too. It's the best type of phone calls I get, too. People that tell me, you know, how this program or that program changed their lives. And I think it's fabulous, and I just continued the journey myself. I've been using them myself for 25 years, and I still play them very, very regularly. You know, this past week I had a conversation with a friend who told me a story. We were at Starbucks, and he said he had a presentation to give, and he was frightened about it. So the day before, he, he immersed himself in an Intertalk CD, headphones on all day long. When he started down the hallway to the meeting room, he heard himself consciously change his self-talk from thoughts like, what if I blow it, I'm too anxious, I can't do this, what am I doing here, to you can do this, you're ready, you're prepared, it's easy, and so forth. My friend offered this as tangible evidence that he experienced from our CDs. The affirmations had become internalized and were repeating themselves as his inner thoughts. And his presentation, by the way, ended in a standing ovation. Again, I love to hear these stories, and it never ceases to amaze me how amazed some of our customers are about experiencing exactly what we tell them they'll experience. You know what amazes me even more what? is how often I could be amazed myself by a particular program. It's like I have all of this familiarity with it, but no, there are definitely, I can still be amazed these days. 
David wrote, I have purchased seven copies of Gotcha and given them to people I've always wished would wake up from their mind-washed, illogical funk. And since reading your book twice and now a third time, I thank you sincerely for your work. John wrote, I have your book Gotcha and find it scarier than I already knew. I have watched since my childhood. Things move along the Saul Alinsky track in politics and the dumbing down in schools. My own children in private school got far less of an education than I did in the 50s and 60s. Your book, Gotcha, goes into greater depth than I knew and suspected. Thank you for writing it. As I watch my friends and compatriots, I fear the overwhelming propaganda machines have taken their critical thinking skills away, and I'm concerned for my grandchildren. Your book will hopefully help reverse that trend. For all of you out there, please read Gotcha. Get it from your library, borrow it from a friend, or buy it for a friend if you've already read it. Too much may depend upon our collective knowledge going forward. All right, that's all the time I'm going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon. That's E-L-D-O-N at EldonTaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly do appreciate your feedback and support. Now to this week's show, Between Now and When, How My Death Made My Life Worth Living, with Richard House, M.D. In his book by the same title, Dr. House relates a transcendent journey from earthly suffering and addiction into the rarely glimpsed supra-reality of higher dimensions. The author first experienced the oneness of existence at age seven. As a teen, he heard a mystical voice that foretold his death at age 33 a prophecy that left him on death's doorstep at exactly that age. His surrender complete, he was propelled into the fourth dimension where his body was miraculously healed. So, let me tell you a little about Dr. Richard House. Dr. House has been practicing medicine for over 40 years and for the past 20 years as an acupuncturist utilizing the chakras for energetic healing. He earned his MD at Indiana University of Medicine. Dr. House amusingly states that he has had these vocations. Jailhouse physician, Los Angeles City Jail, ear surgeon at Kaiser Permanente, owner-in-chief baker, Plaza Bakery in Santa Cruz, California, and medical acupuncturist in Goldsboro, North Carolina. Dr. House received his acupuncture training through UCLA and L.A., He is a diplomat of the American Board of Medical Acupuncture and is licensed by the North Carolina Acupuncture Licensing Board. Dr. House, the first full-time medical acupuncturist in the eastern U.S., founded the Goldsboro Acupuncture Clinic in 1991. In 1992, he was appointed as a founding member of the North Carolina Acupuncture Licensing Board by Governor Jim Hunt. Dr. House lives on a seven-acre farm with his extended family, pursuing organic gardening, gardening, beekeeping, and animal husbandry. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Richard House. Well, thank you, Eldon. It's a pleasure to be here. Indeed, our pleasure. And you know, I'm going to start right out by apologizing to you because you were scheduled to this show oh, a month ago now, four weeks ago. And uh, that was our mess, uh, not yours. So um, we, we told everybody you'd be here. We even set up everything for you, uh, introduced you at that moment. And then the station told me, hey, you know, I'm sorry. I think he has patience. Something's messed up here. But that was our error. So we apologize. Those things happen. 
<laughs> That's the first time for us, but hopefully it's also the last. All right, before we discuss your book, Doctor, let's let's talk about who you are. We like to get three things from each of our guests. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? So to that answer, please tell us a little bit about your life as a young person. Uh, when did you decide you wanted to be a doctor? What did you do when you were in school? Were you a good student? Uh, you know, inform us about Dr. Richard House. Well, I think a good place to begin is the beginning. And as your bio uh, indicated, uh, really things started when I was seven years old. I was um, standing underneath a cedar tree that my grandfather had planted on his first day of dental practice years before. And uh, all of a sudden I experienced this incredible sensation of oneness with uh, everything that is. Now, remember that I'm seven years old, and all of a sudden I experience myself as the vast uh, existence itself. And I think in the Buddhist tradition it's called Satori. Uh, and so I think that was the first indication that my life was going to be a little different than most. But you'll get a kick out of this. And I've heard this from other people that have experienced similar things. There was this sort of desire of mine to come up with a name for a new identity. And and that name, oddly enough, that I came up with was um, Ichen, I-C-H-E-N. And I started calling myself that. And uh, my mother, who uh, was an academician, fairly stern, uh, she said, what's this Ichen business? Your name is Richard. And that was the end of it. <laughs> but uh, life went on, and, of course, that experience left me with this uh, dual feeling of being not just a kid, but something uh, much bigger than that. And that feeling persisted uh, until I was about 13. And uh, then, once again, I was minding my own business, uh, actually drawing a figure um uh, on a piece of paper, and all of a sudden, I had this uh, message uh, that came in my mind. It was sort of words, but not really. Uh, you know, I've, I sometimes call it brain mail, sort of like email of the higher dimensions. But this brain mail left me with a message, and as you as you mentioned, and it it foretold it. What the message was is, you're going to die when you're 33. Sort of an alarming message. But along with the message, Elton, came this uh, incredible feeling of peace and of almost excitement. And so that was what I really took home from that uh, experience, was this sort of knowledge that uh, something bigger than myself was orchestrating uh, my life. And uh, even if it ended at age 33, I was fine with it. So I just picked up my skateboard and kept right on going. Wow. Now, did you know the meaning of Ichen when... No. Uh, you didn't. So, no. I mean, and the meaning, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, I mean, it basically could be translated as a quick or active mind, right? Well, that's... A, it, actually, I didn't know that, Eldon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, the first name of Ichen... Okay, I've just got it up on the computer here. First name of Ichen has been given to quick minds, which has caused 
people to delve into many different ideas and theories. So I, I find that really interesting. Why would you give yourself the name Icken? Believe me, I have no idea, and I, I didn't know that it had any meaning whatsoever. So this is news to me, and it's very pleasant news. <laughs> well, it, yeah, it would seem to be, especially based on your life. And I'm getting ahead because I've read your book. It's a wonderful book, by the way. Uh, I, I, I've read your story. It would seem to me that it, it also perfectly fit. Uh, not so much, well, maybe even the, the experience of Satori, but, but fit who you have been in your lifetime. Well, isn't it, isn't it wonderful how divine energy finds us and uh, it sort of taps us on the shoulder and, and uh, you know, like all these years, I never knew that. <laughs> More than synchronistic. Listen, we've got a hard break. When we come back, we'll pick it up there. We're speaking with Dr. Richard House about his life, work, research, and inspiring book, Between Now and When. To learn more about Dr. House, visit his website at richardhousemd.com. Okay, remember to join Ravinder in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. A silent battle has been raging for the territory of your mind. Like a virulent virus, the effects are spreading. In Gotcha, Eldon Taylor explores the 24-7 bombardment of information designed to manage your thinking. He demonstrates how new sound bites are championed into personal awareness, becoming memes of the culture. And this results in framing and reframing classical positions, causing adjustments to personal values and history itself. Your every decision process is being managed and manipulated. Gotcha exposes the arrival of the Orwellian age in full-blown technicolor. In laying bare the current uses of the many sophisticated techniques, Eldon reveals what it is we need to do in order to avoid allowing others to puppet our thoughts. For details, go to eldentaylor.com backslash gotcha. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Just do what the man said. He said, 
Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Dr. Richard House about his life, work, research, and inspiring book, Between Now and When. To learn more about Dr. House, visit his website at richardhousemd.com. Now we ask our guests for three pieces of music, three of their favorites, music that has some genuine significance to them. Music is more important to us than many recognize. It can awaken forgotten memories and has even restored lost states of consciousness. I particularly am enjoying this new field of music psychology and some of the research that shows us practical relevance for many areas of our lives, including aptitude, skill, intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. So, we just played some of Paul McCartney. Listen to what the man said. Please tell us, Dr. House, why is this music important to you and how does it instruct us about who you are? Well, Eldon, uh, there's actually a lyric in it that uh, speaks to me, and that is, love is blind. And uh, it, to me, that is something that is so true, uh, and it needs to be blind. We need to uh, find love wherever we can find it, whether it's uh, in a relationship or with the people we work with. And uh, you don't have to necessarily like the person that you're uh, going to try and love. So that's why I like that particularly lyric. And then plus the Beatles, you know, I was in a fraternity when the Beatles started uh, playing their music in the U.S. And as uh, as uh, pledges, we had to sing that particular song. <laughs> oh, so now we get the memory. Lots of memories come back from that. Then whenever you hear it, don't they? Exactly right. Memories. You know, uh, musical memories have this sort of uh, wistful feeling. You know what I mean? I do, I do, I do. Uh, we're still really sorting that kind of info out, but I certainly do. Listen, uh, I, I don't know if you had a chance to look, but if you are interested in pursuing Ikken and the meaning of the name, uh, I found this definition. I gave you just a tiny bit of it. It's actually a full page under com. the meaning of names, why, why the meaning of names matter, just in case you're interested. Well, so, that is fascinating, and so I thank you for that. Of course. <laughs> so now, you uh, you were raised in a religious family, were you? Well, my folks um, went to various churches, from um, the Quaker Church in Whittier. You know, I grew up in a Quaker town, uh, famous mm-hmm. for Dick Nixon, as it turns out. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And then they I tried some other uh, churches, too, but I was not religious, as as a matter of fact, uh, that became an interesting part of my journey because I had absolutely no preparation for what I experienced. I had no frame of reference, and so much of what happened to me was just like this name business, you know? <laughs> I find out after the fact instead of uh, before. So did you, I mean, you shared the experience with your family? Uh, yeah, actually, I did not. You didn't, so you kept it private. uh, Nope, uh, because I had this feeling, and this has been another one of my themes, that um, these mystical experiences need to be held close to the chest. And so it was a rare thing for me to talk about any of these things, and I never did with my folks. They had absolutely no idea. (laughs) Wow, that's really interesting. Did you have brothers and sisters? Two brothers, uh, yeah. Um, and and one, did you uh, share? One, you didn't share with them either. 
No. And so in later life, when I started uh, sending them telegrams from India, they thought, what in the world happened to my brother? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So now we're starting to get the picture. We, we've got an academic household. Uh, maybe you go to church, but it's a sampling here and a sampling there. You're having these deep mystical experiences, and you're not telling anyone. And then all of a sudden you show up in India. Is that the idea? <laughs> Pretty close, yeah. Okay. Listen, your book tells us that um, you weren't really the best student. You know, you were an encyclopedia salesman, and you had a 2.7 GPA. You want to tell us about the magic of how you got into medical school? Sure, yeah. Um, When I enrolled at uh, Butler, which is a fine fine university in uh, Indianapolis, uh, I discovered two things. Uh, the first, and they were both wonderful. The first was romantic love, and the second was uh, somebody who was going to be a good friend, and that was Jack Daniels. I learned how to drink. <laughs> so, <laughs> those two things. Uh, I was more interested in those two things than in English 101. And so... The fact is that I ended up at in my sophomore year with a 2.3 average, which is absolutely disgraceful. But uh, my dad was a dentist, and uh, I had the notion of uh, becoming a dentist myself. And I had a feeling that maybe I could get into dental school with a 2.3. I wasn't real sure about it. But one day I was down in Holcomb Gardens, a lovely place for students to uh, maintain their sanity. And uh, once again, I had a mystical experience where uh, this voice sort of entered my head and gave me this message. And it was very simply, you should become a physician, not a dentist. And you talk about a direct message. You know, I had absolutely no desire to be a doctor. In fact, I was uh, frightened of hospitals. Um, at one point, both my parents were in, in, in a hospital with various illnesses, and it was a, a frightening thing for me to visit there. And, and so I never wanted to be a doctor. And here it was, this message saying you should be a doctor. And furthermore, I had a, a 2.3 average. And so, but this message was accompanied by this feeling of bliss and excitement. And, you know, I jumped up and I said, okay. You know, and that was it. But I thought to myself later as my rational brain sort of kicked in, wow, if this message is from God, he's got one hell of a job ahead of him. (laughs) (laughs) I love your sense of humor. Uh, Go on. I don't mean to interrupt you. uh, Well, I resigned from the fraternity. I was an officer there, and I didn't see my girlfriend as much. But I did maintain my uh, close friendship with Jack Daniels. And uh, started studying like crazy and uh, got tutors, the whole business. And uh, I ended up uh, applying to medical school with a 2.7 average. And uh, I was at the interview. I used the skills that I had uh, acquired as an encyclopedia salesman uh, to sort of sell myself. And by golly, I was admitted uh, with sort of... uh, a, uh, with about the lowest uh, GPA that I've ever heard of. 
But the good you must part have done was, real well on the GRE or something, or were you just that good of a salesman? Yeah, well, I was um, sort of in the mid mid range in the what's called the MedCat or MCAT uh, okay. test. Um, but I think what they saw was my earnestness uh, because I, they brought me back for a second and a third interview, and they they finally decided that I was telling them the truth that I wanted more than anything to be a physician and that I was up to it and. My time in medical school actually proved that. I was a, a very good uh, medical student and later physician, and I found my niche in, in surgical, in surgical uh, 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 rotations and uh, eventually became an ENT surgeon. Uh, so they were right. They should have. And so when that happened, and this is interesting, I started believing that this captain that I seemed to have that was guiding my life was right on. You know, here I am uh, following his advice or whoever, and um, it worked. So it was interesting. All right. You call him the captain. Let's, let's, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but, you know, at the age of 33, um, you know, well, let me see, let me say that you heard a voice that said you would die at the age of thirty-three. Uh, how did you know this was, you know, God, or had you learned just to rely on this internal voice because of everything that had gone on? I mean, is it God? Is it Captain? What are we talking about here? Yeah, good question. And you know, it, at the time, it wasn't a question. I didn't give it much thought. It was just the way that my life was going, and uh, I realized that I was getting some sort of divine help, and I had no idea what form it was. I knew it probably wasn't Jesus, and so I just went forward, you know. But um, what happened was um, I did achieve what I set out to do, and I was a successful doctor and had a, a wife and a, and a daughter and a Porsche in the garage, and you know, the whole business, the big old house. Right. And uh, you were talking about money uh, earlier, and it was easy. It came my way easily because I was really good at what I did. I I found that in surgery, I sort of slipped into this state, which uh, was um, sort of like what athletes call uh, the zone, if you're right. familiar with mm-hmm. that term. The peak and experience is zone. I sure couldn't am. do any. Are you with me on that? Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. So uh, in surgery, I I entered that zone, and um, I could do nothing wrong. It was absolutely phenomenal. I was the best surgeon that I've ever seen. And, you know, that's that's not very modest to say that, but uh, I came from a long line of uh, excellent surgeons, and uh, by golly, I was right up there with them. So now... Yeah. I don't want to cut you off, but I just want to understand here. So, in a sense, you slipped into a trance. Yes. Okay. So, I just, I mean, the peak experience, the zone athletes often talk about, they look back upon afterwards. I mean, they're not thinking about what it is that they're doing. They've done it, and then they realize what they've done. That's the kind of thing you're telling me. Yeah, it is a trance state, but... it's not being removed from the reality of what you're doing. It's not sure, like being right. unconscious. 
It's right. being more involved in it, if 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 that's possible. You yeah, know, your it, senses it, it, are. I, yeah, I understand. Now, John of God, I'm sure you're familiar with who he is. Um, yeah. You know, different entities entered John of God. <clears throat> Uh, in fact, I have a, a friend that's a neurosurgeon in Hilo, Hawaii, who went to Brazil and actually, you know, filmed some of the things, had some firsthand experience there, and he says uh, he's going into a trance. Is that the same kind of trance? I mean, did you ever have the sense that you were being assisted, facilitated, guided, helped, or, or whatnot by ancestors that were surgeons or by something else? No, it really wasn't that way. It was okay. more like I was uh, in a state of perfection. And so it wasn't like there was an entity helping me. Uh, it was like I was be- I was in a perfect state and perfect alignment with uh, what was going on in that present moment. Great. And so as a result, it's sort of like, um, what was it, Stephen Herigal's? book the zen of archery yeah mm-hmm. zen of archery, uh, huh? yeah where he talked about being both the arrow and the target at the same time mm-hmm. so i would describe it more of a zen state rather than an entity helping now this just happened to you naturally it wasn't that you studied zen buddhism or uh, some mystical tradition this just just happened to you it was like that's, the Satori experience at the ages. When you look at that today, if, if I ask you, why do you think you experienced Satori at age seven? Uh, how would you explain that? <laughs> well, you get right to the root of the matter, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> well, uh, I'm going to have to fast forward a moment. And, okay. Uh, and give you a, a bit of a punchline, and then we'll carry it forward. Uh, after I had the uh, the near death experience, uh, and uh, r- sort of walked away from that old life that I had lived, uh, I found that I had increasing understanding of not only how things work on Earth and and beyond, but what my place in it was. And so, to answer your question, I feel like I was given a, a special birth for the work that I do now. Yeah, a reincarnation. Yes, I'm. Um, I did not, like you suggest, I hadn't read about any, <laughs> any of this stuff. But after I started meditating in Hawaii, which I go into some detail in the book, right? I started understanding. Uh, through meditation, how things work. It was sort of like taking a course in metaphysics because I would be walking on the island or or be in a meditative state, and one of the first things that came up was, we come here more than once. And uh, so it wasn't a matter that I studied reincarnation or heard about it. I mean, everyone hears about it, but I didn't give it much thought. But as soon as my eyes were open to that fact, I could look out at the world and I saw things so much differently. And shall we talk about that for just a moment? Sure, please, please. Okay. Uh, one of the things that is inescapable 
is that some of us are born <laughs> with uh, a better circumstances than others. Right. Uh, certainly, uh, as your uh, intro piece went into, uh, we in America are uh, the fortunate of the fortunate. Uh, you know, our lifestyles, although we may bitch and moan and protest because we need $12 an hour instead of seven uh, and a quarter, you know, right. we are wealthy here. And in general, we enjoy better circumstances than the people uh, that are migrants trying to get to Germany, you know, my goodness, uh, or the people in Sudan that are starving. Well, when you look out at that spectacle with uh, with reincarnation in mind, then it's easy to say, there but the grace of God go I. But even more to the point, in my worldview that I developed over the following 30 years from that from that time, we all experience everything there is to experience in this creation. So my view is that we all are at some point disadvantaged, maybe starving, maybe brutally uh, uh, beaten, and also we all are kings and queens, and we all experience sickness and uh, health, and we all experience poverty and wealth. And when you have that worldview, it makes this whole thing make more sense, because other... The other way, it looks like God plays favorite. You know, why is this person so advantaged and this one is suffering? So, so True. for me, this was a big one. Of course, you know, the Eastern tradition would explain a lot of that away as karma or dharma, you know, and, and, uh, and, 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 and if I understand you, you're not really meaning this in a linear sense, are you? Like we're all kings individually here on this earth because that would give rise to dating this earth much older than it really is but 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 how do you apply that what do you mean by that what i mean is that we have a succession of births uh each one of us uh uh, where there is sort of a uh well i think they call it an akashic record although i'm not really sure what that means akashic record yeah it's the library in the sky where our yeah. lives are. Okay. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. I didn't in, mean to cut you off. Uh-huh. In the, the way I look at it is um, that we have three bodies. I have to get into this to explain it. Okay. Uh, we have a mental or causative body. We have an energy or subtle body, and we have a physical body. Are you with me on that? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. In some traditions, they call one of them an ethereal body, and there's all kinds of different views on this. In my view, the, the causative or mental body is where the record of our births is kept. And uh, so, if we have a lifetime where we're suffering enormously, uh, then the next lifetime there would be uh, some reprieve from that. And so, what it amounts to is that we have a linear experience that allows us to experience everything. And that during this course, we learn uh, not only uh, what it's like to be a human on Earth, but we learn to transcend uh, those uh, seven uh, so-called deadly sins that are ingrained in every uh, every person. And so we transcend 
those um, things like hate and and uh, selfishness and you know the whole business. Right. So it's a curriculum. Like going to school. Let me let me like ask you going this. Going to school. <laughs> uh, you know, last week we had a philosopher on the show, and we talked about monism and panpsychism, and of course they would, uh, at least ostensibly, appear to contradict the notion of reincarnation. So from your own perspective, do you see everything as ultimately coalescing in one oneness, as the Eastern tradition might have it, uh, escaping moksha, the wheel of rebirth, and experiencing nirvana, the proverbial drop of water in the sea, or are we individuals and will retain that individual identity as in stories of the resurrection, reincarnation, and so forth? Yes. Um, well, actually, it's a little bit of both. And, and the, way in, the way I see it is that, talking about reincarnation, eventually we do experience everything. And uh, after a number of lifetimes, we... Uh, arrive at the point where we start to sort of um, balance things out. And so we've been male plenty of times, we've been female plenty of times, and so on and so forth. And when that happens, then we enter the spiritual path itself, which is sort of a cleansing process where we start shedding the impressions that we've gained all the way through. Uh, are you familiar with the term sanskaras? that's talked yes, about in the East. Mm-hmm. You are? I am. Uh-huh. Well, explain okay, to our audience well, what it, you're referring to, though. We have yeah, an audience out there. In, in fact, well, we got I'm going to ask you to... Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to ask you to hold it right there because I don't want the computer to kick us out and, and it's going to do so in about 35 seconds. So when okay. we come back, pick it up right there. Okay? I, I if you'd like yeah. to know more about Dr. Richard House and his work and book, Between Now and When... Visit his website at richardhousemd.com. Now we have a video for you during the break featuring our guest discussing his merging, one with everything. How timely, just what we were talking about. You can view it by joining the chat room. Just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD, and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Richard House about his life and inspirational book, Between Now and When. Now, Dr. House, we just played your second musical choice, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, performing Love the One You're With. So you got to tell us, what's the story with this one? <laughs> oh, me. You know, I don't think we choose who we actually love. It's uh, something that is awakened in us as we meet someone. And uh, sometimes it doesn't work out for us to be with the people that we love the most. But, uh, you know, our, our great challenge in life is to love everyone as best we can. That's why I like that song. So you happen to be able to think of the one that you wanted to be with, and that didn't work out, but uh, but the, you know, am I going down the wrong road? <laughs> <laughs> well, we all do it, don't we? <laughs> we do, we do. You know, take some candor to admit it. That's a fact. All right. Before the break, you were about to explain. To, in fact, pick it up, if you will, please. Oh, sure. Yeah, very briefly. Um, this this business of having our experience recorded in a part of our uh, mental body that's then then uh, carried forward each lifetime. Uh, the actual mechanism of that is the sanskara, and a sanskara is simply a, a an impression uh, on our mind through an experience in the creation. And the second part of the sanskara, there are two parts of, in each sanskara, is a desire that's generated by that. So uh, if we have the impression of, uh, for instance, wanting to be wealthy, and yet we're in a position where we can't be that lifetime, uh, then that uh, desire to be wealthy will be carried forward in the next lifetime, and you would, you would find wealth, and so on and so forth. And so what happens is that our experience is not only linear, but it's incredibly ordered. And if, you know, it doesn't seem that way because life seems so random. But if you, if you do have the pers larger perspective of, uh, of uh, a series of lifetimes, then it does make more sense. But to answer your question about retaining individual identity, this is a big one when you start t uh, talking to folks about reincarnation because, sure. uh, you know, if, if you happen to be, uh, uh, say, um, uh, well, in my case, Richard, uh, the question is, am I going to always be Richard? Or as soon as I die, does that go away somewhere and never come back? And so the answer I give is that it's sort of <laughs> both ways. Uh, now, how can that be? Well, Richard is just one of a series of lifetimes. You know, before maybe I was uh, um, uh, Peter or Linda or something like that. And we accumulate identity throughout the time. And so we have not just one identity, but many that are, are sort of attached to our experience. And so after a, a time, we have achieved what we came for. And that is basically transcendent of those uh, seven non-virtues that I mentioned. I go into this a lot in a second or third book that I've written. It hasn't been published yet, but... Uh, it, very briefly, uh, we learn to transcend those non-virtues by developing uh, a higher self that uh, counters it. We don't ever lose those things. We never lose uh, greed and, and hate and selfishness and pride. 
But what we do is uh, they are a platform for de- developing the opposite. So we develop love, which actually is the opposite of most of those things. You know, hate, the opposite is love, and jealousy, the opposite is love, and so on and so forth. So as time goes on, we have multiple um, identities, and each time we get a little closer to transcendence of those non-virtues. Now, when that happens, then uh, we're prepared to uh, enter the spiritual path, which is a series of steps. You know, they're called, uh, they're actually uh, additional dimensions, if you really want to get technical about it, or what I call universal chakras. and each time that we uh, uh, each lifetime that is spent on that path helps us uh, so those sanskars that we've developed to fade. And so we're not so much Richard or Peter or Linda, but we're we're something grander than that. Uh, we are something that has more knowledge, and we are an identity that has more power. And we're uh, experiencing much more bliss, which is the opposite of the human state. You know, if you want to talk about the human state, uh, let's call it as it is. Of course, there's, there are moments of joy and peace and love and so on. But in general, our human experience is one of suffering and powerlessness and ignorance. And so as we grow, then the opposites start manifesting, which would be uh, increasing knowledge and increasing bliss and in, and increasing uh, power. And then at the very end, uh, when we, you, you mentioned nirvana, and that is one of the steps, but there is a, a grander step where we become everything that there is. So instead of just being Eldon or Richard or Linda or Peter, we become everything that there is, just as I experienced that at the age of seven. And so that is a totality of experience that doesn't take away. It's not a lot. You don't lose your identity. Uh, Another way I say it is that everything that is becomes richer or everything that is becomes Eldon in in its uh, grandest expression. How did I do with that? You did really well. Uh, What you've done, though, is you've taken us out of this notion of uh, an eternal progression, a God begetting a God, I mean, each of us becoming gods, that kind of thing, taking us away from, you know, the salvation that comes from... uh, the resurrection and uh, the great apocryphal writing—not apocryphal, but uh, you know, end times writings—that uh, we get in Christian uh, in the Christian tradition and placed us more in a solid um, Eastern system that, for all intent and purposes, is an aggregate of all of us merging to one. Have I got that right? You got it perfect. <laughs> okay. Now, when you, uh, however, when you go ahead, please. Let me just add one thing that I feel yeah. is very important. I do not denigrate any of the religious concepts or any of the religious transition or traditions, whether it be Christianity or Islam or uh, Buddhism, because these are all steps along the way that are so va- so incredibly important. But. Um, it's not something that will carry us the whole way. You know, we have to become uh, a Christian, a Buddhist, uh, a Muslim, and so on and so forth. 
before we can experience the totality of oneness. I had to add, throw that in there for my yeah, Christian no, no. friends, and I firmly believe it. Religion, in a sense, whether it's um, I'm a, an atheist, a practicing atheist, insisting on atheism, and I think of that as a religion just as much as scientism and the material reductionism, or I, I'm a Christian. I, I, uh, they're attributes of our... You know, our experience is, I mean, if that's how I understood you to explain it, have I got that right? Yes. Uh, I like the, uh, the image of, a, a, like a wooden spoked wheel mm-hmm. with, uh, each one of the, tr- uh, spiritual pathways, uh, at the very, at the rim being pretty far apart. But as you travel down a spoke towards the center hub, they all start to merge. Uh, because the great saints and all the and and the avatars like Jesus, they all said the same thing. But uh, you know, out towards the the rim, of course, all the religions are quite different. And certainly, when you turn on the news, you certainly get a view of that. <laughs> this isn't that true today? Isn't that true? But all right, now you you got this, received this information, if I understand you correctly. Um, through what? An impression? Uh, through communication directly? Uh, from your captain? Um, or you just recalled it all suddenly in a flash? Or how did you gain the insight you just shared with us? Uh, okay, it's a little bit of, uh, several of those things. Um, when I started meditating in Hawaii, you know, I spent six months there. Uh, doing nothing but meditate. And let me tell you, if you do, if you do meditation all day and all night for six months, there's a lot of stuff that will come in. Whoever is that committed, uh, particularly when, uh, you're in an island that's so beautiful, <laughs> uh, big things happen. And I started having understandings of, uh, that came independently through that. But more to the point, uh, down the road, I discovered who had been giving me uh, these uh, these insights and help throughout my entire life, and that was uh, who I call a captain, who I discovered was Meher Baba, uh, M-E-H-E-R-B-A-B-A, uh, who can be called uh, an ascended master or uh, many people consider him to be the avatar of this age. But he had... Uh, dropped his body in 1969, and so certainly he was not on Earth when I was going through all this. But uh, as I was in Hawaii, I started understanding that it was, in fact, him that was giving me the help. So his writing that story because I think, you know, the story of how you walked into the bookstore, that was a... I think that was a profound story. It gave me goosebumps when I read it. So, you know, share that story with our audience, please. <laughs> okay. Well, my uh, when I started having mystical experiences after I uh, my near-death experience, I want to go back on that because this is important for the listeners to understand, I think. Uh, you know, I had uh, basically died and then uh, had my body heal when I was in a different dimension. And then afterwards, I started having these experiences, the first of which I was sitting in uh, my house looking down, you know, in the middle of the night, was upset about something. And uh, I was looking down at the floor tiles, and all of a sudden they just became the most beautiful 
thing that I had ever seen. The floor tiles just jumped out at me with this luminescent beauty. And I thought, you know, my doctor's brain didn't have any any reference for that. You know, it was like, what is this? How can this be the most beautiful thing that I've ever seen? Well, that was my introduction to what I call the beautiful land, this sort of independent dimension that I discovered that underlies what we see every day. Uh, if you consider the world that we see as the mundane, everyday world, there is something, and I guarantee this, underneath it that is vastly more beautiful. <laughs> anyway, I started spending time in that state, and I found that the laws in that state are different, the perceptions are different, the feelings are different, and I would walk in it for days at a time. And uh, the interesting thing to me, Eldon, is when I was in these states, uh, and this is right after I got sober, I had, you know, a lot of problems. Everyone that goes through what I went through has problems, you know, financial problems, relationship troubles, all that. But when I was in the state, there was no worry, no fear, no guilt. Everything was so wonderful. And yet I could use my uh, left-sided brain to think of all those things, but there was no, there was no emotion connected with it. Now, that was my first introduction to a higher dimension. Uh, and I spent probably six months or so in and out of that. Now, that's why I chose the title of the book, uh, Between Now and When, because the now would represent uh, the world where we pay bills and are stuck in traffic and all that. And the when is this beautiful land that I discovered. Now, this beautiful land is here everywhere. We just have to learn how to experience it and live within it. Now, there are a few of us that are able to do that uh, or have been able to do it. I don't do it so much anymore. But uh, that is where we're all headed, in my view. See, this is the message that I really want to convey, that I w I'm not only living between now and when, but our whole humanity is living between now and when. And eventually, we will all make that leap in consciousness where we exist as a, as a human, uh, as humankind living in the subtle world, that beautiful land where there is no aggression and where there is no uh, war and uh, where there is no worry. So uh, that's my message. You you see that as let's just go to your NDE for a second. All right. Okay. You you have a near death experience. You're clinically dead. Define clinically dead. We we hear a lot of conversations about. I mean, and, and you know, as a physician, that's kind of a moving target right this moment, especially when you start looking at brainwave and vegetative states and and so on and so forth. So tell us the story of your near death okay. experience. Yeah, I will. As a matter of fact, there was a, a reviewer of my book on uh, on Amazon, and she was quite upset because um, there wasn't any evidence of a flat brain wave and so on in my case. And she said, "How can that be a near death experience?" Right. You know, and I I actually can't argue with that position. You know, uh, but anyway, what happened was that um, with my close association with Jack Daniels. Uh, I experienced, uh, basically I ruined my liver 
uh, and uh, I started getting uh, swelling of the belly and swelling. You know, my God, I put on 50 pounds, and I was a mess. But I couldn't seem to stop drinking, you know, which is the hallmark of addiction. Right. Um, but eventually it got to the point where I had to stop working and um, uh, got. I started having bleeding in my esophagus and was puking blood, pardon me, uh, and was admitted to the hospital. And the doctor came into the room, who was an associate of mine, of course, and, and he said, well, we've got your lab values. He said, do you drink? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, and, of course, the answer was, yeah, a beer or two, you know. But uh, what happened was the my liver was so uh, shot that the veins in the esophagus were bleeding, and I was bleeding out. And there's no way to stop it. Right. So they were giving me transfusions. I had 18 of those transfusions. And uh, they'd put it in uh, my arm, and it would come out uh, through the uh, tube in my stomach. And so eventually, after a few days, the uh, the surgeon came in and he said, listen, my friend, you know, this, this isn't going anywhere. Um, there's a surgery you can have, but, uh, it doesn't, the outcome is not particularly good. And oddly enough, I had been, a uh, an assistant surgeon on the surgery for this problem enough times and saw everyone die that I said, no, thank you. <laughs> and to tell you the truth, Eldon, I was sick. Man, I was tired. Uh, I didn't want to live anymore. And uh, I said, man, I need I need to get out of this. The suffering was so intense. And I had so much guilt, you know, about leaving my family in this mess. And, of course, as you mentioned, I was 33, right? Right. <laughs> Pretty young guy. <laughs> Pretty young guy for all that. And so so he said, "Why don't? We, uh, what do you want to do? I said, just stop the blood. Just let me go. And so I said my goodbyes to everybody. And uh, that night at about 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, after the blood had been stopped, I uh, experienced what can only be called comfort. It was the first time in my life that I had really been comfortable. And that feeling was so welcome. <laughs> uh, it was just wonderful. And then it segued into something that's more than comfort which I would call bliss. And in that blissful state, it was sort of like that, what I would later describe as the beautiful land, where there was no worry, there was no fear. I, I just felt one with everything, and I started drifting away from my body, uh, you know, which I think a lot of people experience when they're in this position. And uh, I could look down at it and see the yellow, uh, horrible body that I had been in, and so I was in a different dimension then. And uh, that's, I did not see a bright light. And the, the lady that was upset with me uh, mentioned that. that I, no, there wasn't a bright light. There were no entities. There were no angels. But, but I was dying or dead. I don't know. So but, you're, uh, you're, you've had an out-of-body experience. So you're outside of the body. You're looking at yourself, right? Exactly right. Okay. All right. Please continue. And, and at that moment, once again, I had a uh, a very clear message that I knew was divine in origin. And uh, that message was, you will heal and work for me, for Isa, which is the way I call God at that moment. And so um, 
if I had been in a position to salute, I would have said, yes, sir. <laughs> that would have been my response to that, because there was no question in my mind that this was the course that I should follow, even though I would have very happily continued the death experience. And that's another message that I want to throw out there for your listeners. And I'm sure you've heard this from other people with near-death experiences. But dying is wonderful. Dying is absolutely magical. It feels great. There is a certain feeling of release. There is bliss. And I would, I would uh, also say that it's my considered belief that that is the way every death is. Not just mine, not just anyone. Everyone, no matter how you die, it is wonderful. And uh, anyway... Now, that's not to encourage any of our listeners out there to go out and, you know, amp it all. That's to assuage any anxiety you might have about what the future might hold. Exactly. Doc. It is wonderful. And and there are reasons for that that we can't go into now. Uh, It's a very elaborate mechanism, this business of dying. But... um, Anyway, uh, I was instructed to go back to my body, basically, and so that's what I did. But when I entered that body again, I knew absolutely for 100% that I was healed. Now, the condition that I had, bleeding esophageal varices, never heals. But in three or four days, I was out of the hospital, and my lab values were either coming back to normal or were completely normal in some cases. The doctors, of course, couldn't explain it, but we see this in medicine. We see people that have miraculous healings. So, I mean, it didn't rate a a headline or anything, but they shook my hand and said, wow, go for it, man. So that's how it happened. An incredible story. Now, I think many of us have had experiences where... What we do is uh, we we validate these internal voices because of external events such as this one. So you 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 have voices that are talking to you. You're being told the captain, the god, whatever. Um, all along the way, if I've got you correctly, and here you are, 33. You have this NDE. It's basically you're in an incurable sit. You're expected to die. Period. End of quotation. If you're not dead, right? Right. And and you're told that you'll heal, and so you return to your body from the out of body experience, and you immediately immunize yourself with that belief. The fair enough up to this point? Yes, it is. Okay. Now the skeptic is going to say. How much of this do you think was potentially due the healing to the belief itself, to the placebo factor that's involved? And, and, you know, expectation, well, it, it, it shapes our perception. It, it, for all intent and purposes, very often delivers to us only what we expect. So we have another break, but when we come back, Dr. House, I'm going to ask you, from the skeptical standpoint, do you think there was anything or there is anything to the notion that, well, you unconscious has just kind of, you know, soothed things for you, brought you to where you are, and uh, and the uh, 
in a natural immune system that you empowered with your belief brought about this healing? As silly as that may sound, that is a question that many skeptics would ask. Well, <clears throat> glad you tuned in today. We know you have many choices, and we're grateful you chose to join us. We love your feedback, so please join me on Facebook or drop me an email at eldon at com. I love sharing your letters and comments on the show, and that's a great way for you to participate. We'll be right back after this short break. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. What is one thing you wish you could change about yourself? What if you could make that change happen with the click of a button? With InnerTalk, Eldon Taylor's patented and scientifically proven and effective technology, change begins to happen the moment you hit play. InnerTalk works by priming how you talk to yourself and when your inner self-talk aligns with your outer goals. Anything becomes possible. Visit www.innertalk.com to find your towel today. Hi, I'm Elton Taylor, and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment Radio. I'm so glad you could join me as we tackle those tough questions in search of the answers that really matter. But remember, this is a journey we are undertaking together, so I would love to hear your thoughts as well. Please send your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com. You can also join in the conversation by... Joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor, that's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. We've been chatting with Dr. Richard House about his new book, Between Now and When. It's a great read. I love the book. I recommend it to all of you. In this half hour, we'll take your calls. So if you have questions, give us a call or advance your comments and questions in our chat room. And remember, I love your feedback, and a great place for that is on Facebook. So I invite you to join me there today. All right, Dr. House, we just played your third musical choice, brand new pair of roller skates. You you got to have a story on this one. Yeah. First of all, I just love that song. You know, it just makes me happy when I hear it. 
But actually, the lyrics also speak to something. I've got a brand new pair of roller skates, and you've got the key. Yeah. What that's, see what I'm saying? That oh, I do. To the, yeah, it speaks to the fact that when we're in relationships, uh, it takes two. You know, that one of us is going to supplement the other and so on and so forth. And so I just love it. <laughs> so you skated by her house and she just kind of ignored you, huh? <laughs> it's a great song. <laughs> All right. Listen, I suggested before the uh, the break that, you know, we'd take this on. And, and you're a trained doctor, a medical doctor. So you're very aware of some of the mental gymnastics that our subconscious mind can play on us. And and with the various defense strategies, compensation techniques, and so forth. And, and you're also totally familiar with all of the placebo research, uh, some of which rivals, you know, drugs itself. So, uh, you know, again, I don't mean to be discourteous, but what that skeptic's going to ask is, did you consider all this as a possibility that might be going on with you as opposed to the captain or the god speaking to you? Well, at the time, I didn't, uh, Gracious. You know, when, when these things happen, <clears throat> and I've heard this from more uh, from other folks that have had similar things, there isn't any doubt, and that sort of is, is a good thing, because sometimes uh, things that are opened up are go against logic. You know, uh, certainly uh, when I decided to walk across India, uh, it was not my doctor's brain telling me to do that. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? I do. Um, but to answer, skepticism is extremely valuable, and so I welcome uh, people that are uh, that have a skeptical notion that you know all this was just balderdash or invented or placebo effect, because the skeptic is questioning. He's saying, well, isn't there a different explanation for this? Uh, this can't be the way it sounds. This sort of magical stuff doesn't happen. And so that question uh, is coming from a state of ignorance. In other words, that person does not have the knowledge that I have, or it doesn't have the same experience that gives them the knowledge. And so in a sense, they have ignorance now, that ignorance is the pathway to knowledge. And there's another take-home for the listeners. This is a firm belief of, belief of mine, that ignorance is the pathway to knowledge. And so we travel that pathway until we arrive at knowledge. And so uh, skepticism is very healthy. But to answer your question, no, I've never doubted it uh, once. But, you know, in my practice, of course, I see patients every day. You know, I'm still a working dude. Uh, I see about 14, 15 people every day and have for a long, long time. And uh, when they walk out, they if, if it's a placebo effect or what I'm doing for them, does it matter? No, because placebo effect is, is in a sense, a healing that comes from the mind, which is probably better than any other form of feeling, because there are no side effects with placebo. 
<laughs> How true. You know, when you say that, I have to ask you about this. I wanted to ask you about when you decided to change your career and you're not going to be the surgeon anymore, emergency room surgeon. You're suddenly going to take up acupuncture. But but before I ask that, I guess, I've got it staged here. Uh, you know, we had a guest not long ago who was going over a number of different studies, one of which stood out in my mind, and that was a study where they used toothpicks instead of needles. Uh, it was designed to see, you know, if acupuncture itself uh, is indeed uh, placebo by nature and or if there is some real something to this energy medicine and manipulating these points. And so they didn't use the typical acupuncture system, the points where the body was touched with the toothpicks and just touched uh, were not the points where needles were used, but they had two groups. One group received the acupuncture, one group received the toothpick uh, touch, if you will, and there was no difference, measurable statistical difference between the two groups. What do you say if somebody approaches you like that? Oh, well, actually, there are some studies, uh, quite a number of them. That That's called sham acupuncture. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when those first studies were done, and some of them were done in Germany, you know, and they do really good work over there they do. Uh, on they acupuncture do. research. But uh, they found that the sham, sham acupuncture was almost as good as what we learned, you know, after arduous training, <laughs> where right. to put the points, you know. So how does that work? Well, the fact is that, and and this is a personal view, so I'm not going to say that all acupuncturists hold this view. But it's not the acupuncture needles that do the job, and I'm sure you understand where I'm going with this. It's the practitioner, and uh, the practitioner's energy uh, that is transmitted during the treatment, whether it's through a needle placement or through just personal contact or through kind uh, listening, um, who knows, but... All of these things factor in, and so no research on acupuncture or any other energetic-based treatment is going to come off in the scientific mode of control and what are the results. It ain't going to happen. Unless maybe we get a Michael Shermer to stick you with the toothpicks, huh? You know, somebody (laughs) negative on the other side that says this is just hocus-pocus. Oh, well, it may be hocus-pocus, and if... Once again, I say to the people that have that view, wonderful. wonderful. No, I don't mean that. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to convey that. I don't mean that. What I'm saying is if your person, uh, your practitioner, touching the patient with the toothpicks were someone that truly believed this is just nonsense, I'm wasting my time and their time, that would seem to me to be... It would indicate it would it would tend to send that particular subject the opposite direction of the beneficial results you'd get with the needle. That's what I meant to say. I understand where you're going with that. Yeah. Uh, well, that's the way it would appear. But you and know, I, and one, I didn't mean Michael was negative. Michael, if you're listening, I don't mean that you're negative. You're just very skeptical. <laughs> you're the king of skeptics. Well, I, I, I don't know who Michael is, so it's not a concern for me. But. Uh, yeah, that's a that's an excellent point you bring up. But I would posit that there's more going on than simple intent. 
that remember this this so-called negative energy person that says it's all hocus pocus. Well, that's the way he's presenting at this moment in time. But who is he really? You know, this person has the same long history that all the rest of us have. And he might have been an energetic healer in a past lifetime. Uh, You know, the energy of the chakras are there, whether your mind is with it or not. And the simple fact that that person is in contact, you know, how did he get there? How did this negative energy person that's full of uh, uh, this idea of being uh, a sham or hocus pocus, how did he get into that room? You know, and this goes back to a little grander view of choreography and and energy and, uh, you know, who we interact with uh, for good or ill. But are you uh, not suggesting? Person, are you not suggesting a kind of predetermined uh, path, a, a kind of, you know, everybody is right where they're supposed to be? Uh, notion. I'm not suggesting it. I'm saying it's the way it is. <laughs> you say that's it. So you would, you know, the. the now I'm going to ask you a tough one here, but because we have discussed this many times on this show, but so that 14 year old Pakistani girl whose nose and ears were cut off by the man she was sold to satisfy as her husband because she failed to do so, discarded to the barn, crawls to her home. Her father, of course, refuses to accept her. She is a sold piece of property. Fortunately, women for women, they come along, they find her, and she ends up in America and surgeons rebuild her. But that little girl was right where she was supposed to be. That was supposed to happen to her. Well, you know, um, it's a hard one to accept, and I don't expect people to embrace that because it's very, very difficult. Uh, but it is the way, that is true. That is my belief. Um, the negative experiences that we have on this earth are just as valuable as the positive ones. And one one thing that I might use to counter that is um, is looking at the life. Uh, or the uh, life experience of many of our saints, and uh, so many, uh, so many times their lives were filled with equally as tragic experiences before they became uh, the saint that they're venerated to be. Um, you know, Til Til Arapa, a famous uh, Tibetan saint, uh, actually practiced black magic and resulted in many people dying before he became a a saint, really awful stuff. So the awful, negative, terrible experience is simply a way to achieve balance so that later on in the game, next lifetime, that person will be elevated. So, yeah, that is my view. It's a tough Doctor, one. yeah, and I'm going to ask you again, um, just for clarification, you know, implicit in what you're saying is, uh, you know, the criminal mm-hmm. – the perpetrator right. of some heinous deed uh, is just doing, you know, what he's supposed to do. And how do we then punish that person? I mean, shouldn't we be rewriting our system of penology? I mean, and, and do we really even need law enforcement? Uh, should we just be allowing it to take its course? No, because um, this this level of understanding this gross world, you know, uh, it requires laws. And, you know, certainly 
<laughs> these days it's, it's not cl- clearly uh, obvious. But, uh, th- yeah, this level has rules and, and uh, behavior restraints that need to be observed. Yeah, we, we, we can't apply the kind of thinking that I'm talking about to, to be uh, sort of a, a nihilist and say, well, that's the way it's going to be. We're not going to help this person. Uh, contrary to that, I would say that it's our duty to do what we can to alleviate suffering, even though it's necessary. Now, in the case of that 14-year-old girl, if I had been there and could have rescued her, I would have. And uh, so I'm not saying that we should just walk away. You know, that is an Eastern concept uh, that I don't agree with. Um, But at the same time, uh, I do feel that negative experiences are very, very important and vital to our to our life on Earth. Even uh, the horrible ones of the Holocaust, you know, everyone always brings that up, you know, and say, how can that be good? And uh, you have to do a lot of personal uh, study and meditation to come up with the idea. There's nothing that I'm going to tell you that will help anyone out there except that as being a, um, a a reasonable part of our experience. I understand. All right. You state, sir, that the longest journey is the journey inward. Please unpack this for us and provide some guidance as to how each of us are to make that journey. How are we to use this information you've given us to empower our lives? Okay. Well, first of all, I don't think there's anything wrong with being skeptical. Uh, Like I said, I think all the non-virtues are pathways to its opposites. And so to answer your question um, the, the most directly, each one of us has an opportunity to transcend all the negative uh, stuff, you know, that little lower self of ours, you know, the one that's so greedy and, and hateful and so on. Um, every time that we resist uh, those behaviors, we're not only helping ourselves, uh, to grow inwardly, but we're also helping the whole scheme, the whole game. Uh, so the longest journey is inward because we deal with our lower selves every day. We have an opportunity to be generous or to, uh, or to not be generous. We have an opportunity to love or to hate. Uh, and so, you know, the, 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 the Christian teams of, uh, observing the, uh, Ten Commandments and, the Buddhist scheme of, uh, you know, seeing everyone as your brother. Uh, those are all the ways that we do develop as, as human beings. And, and so that's what I would say is uh, the best course. Now, for people that are more advanced than that, meditation, yes, boy, do I recommend that. And for every patient that I, if I recommend it a hundred times, only one or two will pick it up. We're just not ready, most of us, to do that. (laughs) That's indeed unfortunate. Nowadays, uh, I think, you know, the most conservative, uh, um, a-religious, non-religious physicians recommend meditation for everything from cardiac care to just stress management. All right, I'm going to jump to the chat room now and take some questions there. Richard says, can... Dr. House, explain the exponential growth in the population. Um, he's referring to reincarnation, and if we're all coming back, uh, you know, how come there's so many more of us here today than there were, 
you know, three three thousand years ago? Well, uh, that's a very good question, and the mathematics can only be understood if you see that there's more than one planet that's habitable. Uh, and so, in this sense, uh, some of our sci-fi folks were absolutely correct. Uh, in in my view, and in uh, the Eastern view, and this is something that Mayor Baba talks about. Uh, there are 18,000 inhabited hydrogen-based planets uh, where we incarnate. And so the, the best way to travel, uh, to do interplanetary travel, is to simply die and be born on a different planet. It's much easier than going in a spaceship. <laughs> so uh, my understanding is that various planets have various reasons for incarnation there that uh, some are mentally balanced, uh, mentally uh, active, and some are heart-based, and some are a mixture of the two. And evolution of form also takes place on other planets. And so the various missing links that they're talk- they talk about a-, a fair amount are on other planets as well. Interesting. I'm going to have to see your third book. You know, we're going to have to bring you back and get this third one, third one out there. You make sure I get a copy or tell me it's available. Will you do that? I'd All right. Be happy to. Mark has a question. I was actually, you know, I was going to ask this, but I saw he put it in. So, question: Do we have free will according to cultural relativism? Morality is relative to each culture, and we should not judge the morality of another culture. Does that mean that it's morally acceptable if a girl is stoned to death or raped because of some relatively minor act she or a family member did? Well, none of it seems fair, and that's a fact. Uh, This world seems rife with injustice. But I want to get back to that first question because that is uh, such a difficult one to answer, the uh, question of free will. Right. And... uh, (laughs) Whatever I'm going to say is not going to be terribly convincing, but it's the way I see it. The uh, Each one of us is born with uh, sort of a uh, chalked outline of what our life is going to be, or like in a coloring book where all the, where there's no color. Okay. And uh, if, if you are a male, unless you're transgender, you're going to always be a male. And uh, if you're if you're born in America, that's the only birth that you're going to have. You know, so those are the the rough outlines of each uh, planned lifetime. Now, we're also given a a box of uh, bright-colored crayons. And uh, our blueprint that comes through Sanskaras that we talked about very briefly will decide what colors we use. But uh, sometimes people sort of um, are able to do a better job when they're they're set of crayons than, than perhaps their... Uh, outline would have uh, suggested, and so they sort of transcend that lifetime uh, or are going to school uh, terminology. They're given some bonus points, and so they they uh, sort of, uh, so it's not just free will. There is something that's called grace, and that grace comes through good work, just like a teacher might reward a student uh, and give them an A-plus or something like that freedom to do something other students don't have. And so there's wiggle room in the system. So uh, in general, I would say we really do not have free will, but we can use our will to transcend that. 
So it's not a very satisfying answer. But another way that I like to say it that's easier to understand is that our will is God's will, because we are a, uh, simply a um, a microsystem of God himself or herself, depending on how you want to say it. Uh, there is no separation. Uh, we experience separation uh, as an illusion. And uh, so if we make a decision, uh, then in, in some way it's been ratified by God. So God's will wow, is our that's will. That's a big one. Now, I, you know, I, I, I relate to my perfect will is God's will. But I spent years as a criminalist, and most of my time was um, conducting lie detection, interrogations, investigations, and uh, some of what I saw was the act of their free will I certainly would not want to attribute to God. But that's another subject. <laughs> Dr. House, we are out of time. I want you. We have about 30 seconds. Tell everybody how they can reach out, learn more about you, and get your wonderful book, Between Now and When. I'd be glad to. Uh, the probably easiest way is to go to my website, which is uh, richardhousemd.com. And it has uh, buttons that will take you to my practice. Uh, that We do have people that fly in to get treatment. And uh, we and it will also take you to my current book and also to a seminar that I'm doing in January in Pensacola, Florida. So that's the easiest way. Now it says right. on there that I'm active on twi- Twitter and uh, Facebook, but I'm I'm not really. <laughs> okay, go to the website richardhousemd.com. Thank you for your work, Doctor House, and for your willingness to share it with us. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.